I don't know if you know where the lyrics to that song came from, but they come from the book of Lamentation. I remember going through a time I was really struggling with God, really angry at God for what he wasn't doing. My first couple of years of marriage related to my wife's health, and I was reading through Lamentations. It's always a bad sign when you're reading through Lamentations, by the way. And Jeremiah does this incredible job of just arguing with God, yelling at God, God, you've targeted me for pain. God, you are not my comforter. And I was really cheering on Jeremiah as he was giving voice to my doubts. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this incredible display of doubt and anger, he gets to chapter 3, verse 20, and says, But... Therefore, I recall this to mind, and therefore I have hope. His mercies are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. As much as we think of it as a hymn, it is a recall of truth to a man who is struggling with incredible doubt toward God. And today, as we begin the book of Luke, we are going to come face to face with another man who is facing doubt. His name is Zacharias. And he has a lot of good reasons to face doubt. The world is still controlled by the Romans. And for many of us, we look at the state of the world and say, it's no wonder anybody can be optimistic. The state of his prayers. He's been praying for decades for a child. And his wife and he are still facing infertility. And now they've given up hope. And there's been no miracles, no prophets, no Red Sea crossings for 400 years. Commentators have called this the time of silence from God. And his doubt toward God's intervention in his life is so strong that even when an angel shows up to him and says, God's got a plan and God is working, he expresses his doubt with this phrase, how shall I know this is true? My circumstances are filled with so much doubt. So if you've ever struggled with doubt and weren't sure you could be honest about it, you're in good company with Zacharias. And what's amazing is as he looks at his life, there is so much evidence that God has left the building. There is so much evidence that God is not working, it would be easy to understand why he's doubting. But there's also so much evidence just behind the surface, that God is not only working, but he's working in the most profound way he's ever worked in history. So we're calling this series X-Ray because Dr. Luke wrote it, and we're going to learn how to X-ray our circumstances to see where God may be at work behind the scene. And if you and I are going to navigate doubt, we're going to need to know how to to X-ray both the Bible and our lives. How do you encounter doubts? Well, two ways. You can learn to trust God with your head as you x-ray the Bible, but also trust God with your heart as you learn how to x-ray your life. And my hope is this will give you confidence as you go through times of difficulty, when circumstances aren't what you hoped or wanted, that God is still at work in the midst. So the first thing we're looking at is how do you x-ray the Bible? What do you mean x-ray the Bible? Well, the Bible makes certain claims And 
Luke is writing to a skeptical, unconvinced, or at least need more information friend named Theophilus, and he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have fulfilled among us. In other words, I'm going to put together a biography about Jesus and the stories of Jesus. Just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses, I want you to know, he says, that I have gone, and what you're about to read is eyewitness testimony. I interviewed the shepherds. I interviewed the soldiers. I interviewed the main characters. You are getting a compilation of researched, footnoted, eyewitness testimony. Because the office is like, how do I know Jesus really raised from the dead? How do I know this is really true? And Luke says, I went as a historian and got the best of the best interviews and I compiled them together here so that you can know with your head that the Bible is historically accurate with multiple eyewitness accounts. I got together the ministers of the word, the people who actually did the work, delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of these things. I I witnessed a lot of it myself, as we see in the book of Luke, uh, his second sequel, Acts. To write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that, why is he writing this book? That you may know the certainty of Jesus, the certainty of what happened. The Bible does not encourage the, you don't need facts, just have faith, magical thinking. That we often hear, that's what Christianity is about. No, it's not. The Bible makes certain claims, and Luke dares us. I'm going to make claims about Jesus. And I dare you to prove me wrong. I have researched the heck out of this. And when you're struggling with doubt, what's great about the Bible is the Bible claims to be history. And because it's history, there's evidence to support it. So when the Bible makes a claim, you go say, is there any claim support? If he says it takes a day to get from Sychar to Jerusalem, let's go look. Does it take a day's walk to get from Sychar to Jerusalem? When he says you need to go up to Jerusalem, is Jerusalem really at a higher topography than the lower sections? You can check out his claims. If he says there's a person named Pilate, Is there any external evidence that Pilate existed? If he says there's a person named Herod, is there any evidence for a person named Herod? And the more you build the evidence up, the claim support for the Bible, the more you go, wow, this isn't just my parents' faith. This isn't just I believe it because grandma and grandpa believed it. This is rooted in history. And Luke tells us to do that. To overcome doubt by getting claim support for the claims. And we see one of those right here. In the days of Herod... Luke begins. Now, to me, that didn't mean much to me until about five years ago. Because honestly, I only knew of Herod because of the Christmas story. So it was like a footnote. Like, uh, Herod, yeah, 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 I think Luke talks about him. But this phrase is so poignant because to reference Herod would be like in our times referencing in the days of George Washington, in the days of Napoleon, in the days of Bill Gates... He is referencing a specific time in history and an unbelievably well-known historic figure. To which we say, well, is there any historic evidence to support that Jesus was born in a time that a man named Herod was king of Judea? And oh my goodness, is there evidence for him. In 1988, they got all the scholars together, all the archaeologists together who'd studied the evidence and archaeology for the different sightings of King Herod. 
They also brought to this some of the top psychologists in the world who studied the evidence written about Herod, including the writings from an extra-biblical material called Josephus' writing in history. And they said this guy was a classic paranoid schizophrenic because he is so scared of losing his power that Josephus records he kills sons, he kills wives, he kills family members every time there's even a rumor he might be under attack. And every time he kills another wife, another son, he falls into a deep, 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 deep depression. And to get himself out of the depression, he would come up with a new project and build, 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 build. And he built the biggest, largest, most incredible, technologically advanced things ever built in his day. And some still stand as marvels even today. I'll give you a couple examples. One is Masada. So this is a picture of Masada. This is one of his temples. This is one of his palaces, rather. This is his beachfront property on the Dead Sea. Here's his bedroom, kitchen area. Eleven swimming pools up here. And this is in the middle of the desert. The guy has a swimming pool, 11 swimming pools in the desert. There's a cistern he built out of solid rock here. The whole thing's out of rock. You can fit about 12 to 15 full-size school buses in here. And he had his workers slash slaves fill his swimming pools. And here in this section is a gymnasium where he at 6 BC has a fully working, fully functioning sauna that the sauna steam comes from the floor up, I got to see. This guy is boiling water in the desert. He has so much power and wants so much comfort. Josephus tells us one of the stories. He felt threatened by his wife or thought she might be in on something and said, you can either stay with me or you can jump off Masada. She chose to jump off Masada. And just to give you an idea, this is pretty graphic how graphic he is. He's so diabolical as Herod the Great, he will be known as Herod the Wicked. He burns her ashes, puts her ashes in a jar, puts it in his kitchen, and every morning as he has his toast, he dips his knife into her ashes and into the butter and spreads it on his food. And this is the guy who's coming after Jesus. This is the one who's threatened by Jesus' birth. Are you getting a sense of just how much the story is not just some fantasy, it's rooted in history? Now, as he built Masada, here's what several people said it would look like in its day. Again, here's his palace, here's his bedroom in the section. That's Masada. And you can, you can see that today. Secondly, he built the Herodian. The Herodian's about 10 miles from Jerusalem. And he wanted to look down on Jerusalem, which has a topography higher than most of the area. So he builds a man-made mountain. That right there is a car. This mountain did not exist, except from 10 miles away from Jerusalem. He wanted to look down on Jerusalem. So he builds this mountain, and he places this palace on top because he wanted to be buried there. You can see that mountain from the Mount of Olives, which might explain why Jesus from the Mount of Olives says, which is covered in uh, mustard seeds, with faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. You could actually see somebody who literally moved a mountain to say what he did in physical moving of a mountain, you'll be able to do far more spiritually by following me. So evidence that Herod exists. Another piece 
is Caesarea Maritime. Here in Caesarea Maritime, I got to visit a few years ago. This was an incredible area that Herod built. Looked like this in its time. Gigantic harbor, gigantic theater right about here. They still use today. You can see the, the ocean there and the Mediterranean. And here is actually the location right in this section where the Apostle Paul will be jailed before he speaks to Agrippa, to Felix, and to Festus. Also, for years, the Bible claimed, and Luke claimed, there was a man named Pontius Pilate. And people made fun of the Bible for years. Pontius Pilate. The Bible says there's a Pontius Pilate. Never has evidence been found of Pontius Pilate. Until about, was it 1950 or 1960, right there, they dug up a gigantic tablet that says, the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And they even have a replica of that sitting right there today as you're walking and looking in this area to show there is evidence for the Bible's claims. And the same Herod who built these incredible structures also built the temple in Jerusalem you can see today. So this temple was the one Jesus walked through, his disciples walked through. It was built by Herod. Now why would Herod the wicked be building a temple? (laughs) Because he was a smart business guy, like the richest man who's ever lived kind of smart business guy. And he knew that over two million people came to temple three times a year. In Leviticus, we learned about the three feasts that were required. And this was an incredible business opportunity. And so he built this temple, one, to get named for himself, and two, to be an incredible moneymaker. And it was. So again, when you're struggling with doubt, my point is you don't have to just believe harder. You can actually accumulate evidence to support that the Bible is historically accurate. And if God worked truthfully in history with some people in their circumstances, then you can trust that God will work in your circumstances. One more example, because the Herods do get confusing. As we go through the life of Jesus, let me keep track of some of the Herods. So Herod the Great is the one that I'm talking about, reigned from 37 to about 4 B.C., which means Jesus was born about 6 B.C., I can get into why the calendar got messed up later. And so he's about two is when King Herod kills the two-year-olds and younger. Now he has several other Herods. Herod Philip, who's uh, married his niece, gets referenced in the book of Matthew. Herod Antipas, who Jesus calls him a fox, and he's the one that beheads John the Baptist. So that's not the same Herod the Great. There's another Herod that kills Herod Agrippa, who kills the apostle James. So in this case, we're talking about the first Herod, the big Herod, the number one Herod, Herod the Great, or Herod the Wicked. Now, I told you that collecting evidence helps you trust God with your head when you're facing doubt. But sometimes you're like, okay, so the Bible's reliable, so it's true, so what, my circumstances still stink. Now, accumulating faith in your head does actually help in your current circumstances. But I also want to move now from your head to your heart. How do you begin to look at your current life and your current circumstances through the lens of x-raying what God might be doing behind the scenes? And that's what we see here with Zacharias. So in the days of Zacharias, in the the days of, of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias lives. And if you ask Zacharias, do you feel like you're living in one of the most historic moments of God's working? No, he would have said. When I look at the circumstances of my life, I am everything but in the center of God's will. He might say, I live in the pig bowl, I live in the dust bowl, and I live in a fish bowl. 
I live in the pig bowl because Josephus records that it was common knowledge in those days to say it would be better to be a pig, an unkosher, Gentile, unclean animal. It would be better to be a pig in Herod's court than one of his sons. This was a time that when Herod got angry, innocent people could die at the drop of a hat, snap of a finger. In fact, Herod was so scared that people wouldn't mourn him when he died that he made an edict that if he ever died, every noble in Jerusalem was to be killed the same day so people would be weeping on the day of his death. He falls into a coma, but they think he's dead from the complications of syphilis, and he's in a coma and his son doesn't enact his command to kill the nobles. And before they go to bury Herod, he comes back conscious and he is mad so much so that he throws a party invites all the nobles invites everybody to the party and takes that son who didn't do what he said and during the party dips him in boiling oil and water i can't remember it's oil or water over and over again and the place partied hearing the screams of his son now do you see when you get to luke chapter 2 and it says herod is troubled and all jerusalem with him when Herod's troubled, we're all troubled. And John would have, Zacharias would have said, oh my goodness, I live in a time where innocent people could die at any time. We're living in the pig bowl. Secondly, they're living in the fish bowl. It says that his wife and he are from two very prominent families. They're from the division of Abijah. If you remember Abijah, that was Solomon's grandson. So what he's saying here is that they come from royal blood. And so there's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of people looking through the fishbowl in their life. And Zacharias comes from the line of Aaron. And that's where all the priests come from, as we learned in Leviticus. So they live in a fishbowl because they have both priestly and royal blood. And they're living in the fishbowl that everyone sees what they're doing all the time. And they're going to go through a serious time of doubt. And the problem with doubting when you're a priest is you're a priest. You're not supposed to doubt. The problem with doubting when you're in the royal lineage is, oh, people from that family aren't supposed to have doubts. They're so living in a fishbowl, there's not a lot of room to be honest about their struggles, about their doubts, and they've got a lot to doubt about because they live also in the Dust Bowl. If you said to them, hey, would you feel like you're living in the prosperous time of God? They say, not at all. We live in the Dust Bowl. Now, we're, we're, they're righteous before God. They were walking in His commandments and ordinances. But they had no child. And it reiterates it in other ways, if we need to hear that, because Elizabeth was barren. And you feel the weight and the sadness of a couple who's prayed for years. God, we want something good to have a child. Why wouldn't you answer this? Why wouldn't you honor this? And now, late into their life, they've even given up praying about it. It's long gone. The dream has died. The hope is gone. And the Bible here says that they are well advanced in years. Same phrase used of Abraham and Sarah, well advanced in years. And you'd say, do you feel like you're just in the fertile time of your life, Zacharias? 
No, I don't. We're living in the dust bowl. Oh, my goodness. My family's dusty. I'm feeling dusty. Have you seen my wife? Dusty. Oh, my goodness. Are you going to have a child soon? I don't think we're going to have a child soon. No, 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 no. And even if we did, we'd be the only ones shopping for Depends and Pampers at the same time, right? He does not feel like he's in the center of God's will. And yet, he is. And yet, behind the circumstances, we see God working, but it's behind the circumstances. Look at some hints here in the next part of the passage. And so it was, he's going through his everyday serving as a priest's life, with gigantic elephants of God not working around him. And as he was serving as priest before God, in the order of his division, it happened the day that his order needed to go and serve. And so they brought his order together, and according to the custom of the priesthood, they rolled dice, casting lots it's called, who of the order would go today to, to present in the holy place. And the dice rolls to him. And so he was chosen to burn incense when he went into the temple. For him it feels like an ordinary day, but we begin to see God orchestrating behind the scenes a way to meet with him. Now outside, the whole multitude of people was praying, waiting for him to burn the incense, like we learned in Leviticus, so that they could then begin sacrifices. And then God orchestrating all these little things behind the scenes, people praying, people gathering, an angel of the Lord, 400 years of silence, appears to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, what's What's he going to feel? It's awesome to see you, God. Oh, my goodness, finally. He's troubled, just like the shepherds, by the way. And fear. This is what it meant to be in God's presence, trouble and fear. That's how he felt. And if you ask Zacharias, you're not in the Dust Bowl. You're in, like, God's Super Bowl right now. He'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. But even in this passage, we see hints that behind the scenes, God is working how the dice rolled, whose division was up, what's happening here. The Super Bowl. Then this angel appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. What prayer? The angel's talking about his prayer to have a child. He may have given up on that prayer like two decades ago. It's actually the same thing Gabriel says in the book of Daniel. Your prayer is heard, but it took me a while to get here because I was fighting spiritual forces. Gabriel hasn't shown up, by the way, since Daniel. And almost the exact same phrases are used when, Dan- when he speaks both to Zacharias and speaks to Mary in the next couple chapters. Your prayer that you thought went unanswered, God has heard. And you and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. To which he must have been like, Really? And you shall call his name John, and you're going to have joy and gladness again. And many are going to rejoice at his birth. Sound like some angel message here? And look at all the he wills. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's neither going to drink wine nor strong drink. Let me pause there for a second. Because he doesn't realize he's in the Super Bowl. 
You remember all the story you heard about Abraham and Sarah who were well advanced in years and couldn't have a child. And you went, oh, what a, what to be back then when God worked. You're the new Abraham and Sarah. And you remember the stories of Samson and Manoah and his wife couldn't have a child and I gave them a miraculous child named Samson and I told them to give him a Nazarite vow to not drink wine. You've got the new Nazarite. You're giving birth to the new Samson. He goes on. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. You got the new Abraham, you got the new Samson, and you got the brand new Elijah here. This is the Super Bowl. And he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the exact phrase used by the prophet Malachi in the last verse of the Old Testament. You got a brand new Malachi here. And he is going to make way for people to prepare for the Lord's coming to earth as predicted in the entire Old Testament. And Zacharias responds to these incredible promises, the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, and says, but how will I really know this is going to happen? Because honestly, I've conjured up belief a few times and been disappointed. I've tried to hope, and honestly, I got kicked in the teeth. How am I really going to know this? Because when I look at my circumstances, first of all, have you looked at me? I'm an old man. Have you seen my wife? She's well advanced in years. To which, if you're the angel, what would you say? And the angel said to him, how will you know? I am Gabriel! An angel is right here telling you! When an angel appears to you and says God has a plan, that's good evidence that you trust that. And many of us say, you know, I could trust God if he just appeared to me, if I just had an angel. But I'm telling you, that is not how the human heart works. Because even when the angel Gabriel, who has not appeared to anyone since Daniel, is standing next to you, giving you promises from God, you still go, My circumstances really contradict that. And what the angel says is, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And this phrase in the Greek literally means, and don't look this up, it literally means, hello, McFly, hello, hello, an angel's talking to you, hello, that's how you can know an angel's here. Don't look that up, by the way. God is telling you right here and now that this is real. But if you need another sign, you need some more evidence, we could take it the good news, or I'll give you another sign that you can know. You're mute until the day he's born. I'll take the other sign. And he becomes mute. He's not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. You chose to believe your circumstances over my promises. You chose to not x-ray what I was doing in the background, but to focus on the foreground. But they will be fulfilled in your time. God will bring about his promises, as he said. Now keep in mind now that all the people are gathering, waiting to get sacrifice going, and they're like, what is that guy taking so long? And so imagine you're out here in temple waiting for all the sacrifices we talked about in Leviticus, You haven't been able to see him. He's in the holy place behind the the outer veil. 
And now he comes out. I'm having a baby. And he becomes the best charades master ever. Look what it says. The people wait for Zacharias, and they marveled that he lingered in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived he'd had a vision. But he beckoned to them. He's doing charades. It's charades time with Zacharias. And he remained speechless. And he communicates, an angel appeared to me. I'm not sure how he did that one. And we're having a baby. He goes home and tells Elizabeth who again, has her own medical issues, has her own aging issues, has her own giving up this dream, please don't awaken something that I finally came to peace with giving up. And as soon as the days of his service were completed, he goes to his own house to tell his wife. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And she hid herself for five months. Maybe five months because she's worried about a miscarriage. Maybe five months because she wasn't quite showing it. Is it really true? Maybe five months because that'll be the moment that Mary comes to her and confirms that God spoke to her about what he was doing in her. Maybe it's because that's the moment that she sees the first fulfillment because she feels not just a regular kick, but like a Holy Spirit kick when the Holy Spirit comes upon John the Baptist in her womb. There's lots of reasons why it might have come to this moment that she stopped hiding herself. Maybe it's the embarrassment of being a 70, 80-year-old pregnant woman. And he looked on me. And she praises God and says, God, you have taken away my reproach. In a culture that says you are only as good as your ability to make children, she said, I just couldn't live up to that. This is what happens. Every culture will hand you something to get your identity. You get your identity by your job. You get your identity from your income, size of your, your house, size of your retirement, your ability to have kids. And then what happens is, At some point, you're going to struggle with some aspect of people's acceptance, size of your bank account, or it didn't fulfill you. And you're going to realize that none of those things can fully and finally satisfy. There's no number that will satisfy. There's no number of kids that will satisfy. There's no number of savings that will satisfy. There's no number of accumulation that will satisfy. And what she's beginning to find is the reproach of building your identity on a cultural mandate of, I'm only valuable if I can have babies can be replaced by finding your identity and God is my source. God is my identity and it's removed my reproach. So, while the circumstances didn't look like God was working, they learned how to x-ray past their circumstances and see where God's at work. And that's why I want to teach us here as we conclude the five things they x-rayed that we can x-ray in our own lives when we face doubt. Number one, they learned how to x-ray their circumstances. Even when God had not answered their prayers for years, it says they were righteous before God. We are going to choose to trust God's way of handling things to do what's right, even though it doesn't seem like he's treating us right. We are going to keep saying, God, we're going to handle anger your way. We're going to handle our money your way. We're going to handle our life your way, even though you're not doing life our way. 
They looked past their circumstances and continued to trust God. Two, they walked in those commandments. God, I'm not sure what you're doing, but I accept the good and the bad from you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm going to walk in your statutes even when your circumstances don't look like they're working out the way they should. And we're blameless. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to ask God for forgiveness. We're going to walk as clear as we can into his presence. And instead of evaluating my obedience based on what you have or haven't done, I'm going to trust and follow you despite how I'm feeling and despite what I'm seeing. That's how we x-ray our circumstances. Second, they learned how to x-ray their service. I mean, if you'd ask Zacharias, he'd say, it's another day at the office. Going to priests, going to go do the thing. I know he's this drop of blood and this drop of blood. He's got the Levitical cult all memorized. And I want to challenge you that tomorrow, even today, you're going to go through your routine. Being a dad, being a mom, being a son. You're going to go through your regular routine, and you might miss the subtleties of where God is working. You may not see, well, that roll of the dice might be God setting me up to meet with him. The fact that my division was chosen might be God working in the background. God might be trying to find ways to meet with me in what seems like pretty routine priestly duties. What if at the beginning of each day you said, God, I'm looking at my agenda. Show me where you might be at work and how I interact with this client, with this friend. As I'm parenting my child, will you help me see where you might want to meet with them or meet with me through this challenge or through this circumstance? Often we miss out on God because we don't, we sort of go through life, go through routines and don't see the little subtle ways he's working. Three, they learned how to x-ray your prayers. And this is so hard to do when God is slow to answer. But when you need to see past God's slowness to answer and say, but God, I'm going to trust it like with Daniel. You heard that prayer and answered it, but it took a while for the angel to get to you. And with Zacharias, it took decades before you felt the time was right. So God, I'm going to trust you do hear prayers. And I'm going to trust that whether you say, go, no, slow, or grow... I'm going to receive the answer from your prayers and trust that you know what's best for me. Four, x-ray your doubts. When you begin to doubt God, do you need to substantiate the evidence for your head? Or is it really your heart? And you need to ask your heart, why have I chosen to put more faith in my circumstances than in God's promises? Because Gabriel gives us the secret. Listen, I just came from God's presence. God's presence is the solution. God doesn't always say, circumstance is going to work out the way you want. But he always promises, from Gideon to Moses to Abraham to everybody in between, I am with you. And Gabriel says, I just came from God's promises, and he's going to fulfill his promises to you. So instead of putting your, your faith in your circumstances, which seem very real, put your faith in the evidence of things unseen, the promises God has for you. And lastly, x-ray your pain. Pain makes it very, very hard to see God. And yet he's speaking through that pain. When you wait, it's hard to trust God. And yet, the people perceived that God was doing something even in the midst of his life. And 
Elizabeth says, man, God has taken away my reproach. And that word reproach is pregnant with meaning of all the years she felt like she couldn't live up to the culture and the society's standards for her, that you're only valuable if you're a baby machine. And part of x-raying our pain is saying, God, this pain in my life, this fear in my life, this difficulty I'm sensing, God, is this telling me in some way I've built my identity on something besides you? That's why I'm so angry, isn't it? Because I want this circumstance more than I want you. And part of x-raying our pain is saying, God, how do you want to use this pain to deepen my relationship with you? Rather than saying, God, uh, being with you can sort of come and go if you'll just fix this thing. So five areas. Circumstances, service, prayers, doubts, and pain. As we continue our journey in Luke, I hope that you will find that your mind is going to be filled with evidence you've never heard before. And your heart is going to be filled with real people going through real circumstances that you can deepen your love and confidence in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our our beginning of our study in the book of Luke. Show us Jesus and lift him high as we study together over the next few months. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here.